You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's 5 p.m. on Saturday, and it's Tasting Together, airing now on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong, and Andre Prue, are you enjoying the nicer spring weather and yanking out that barbecue of yours? Well, I never put my barbecue away. That's, a, oh, I guess, the, I'm, my Saskatchewan is showing a little bit. But, um, you know, I hate this stretch of the year. Like, it always just feels like we really need more holidays between January and May, don't you think? Well, there's family day in February. Yeah. And then you're in that, like, gray stretch. Yeah. Nonstop. It just feels like I, it's I been, suppose... like, way too long since Easter before, since our last long weekend. And it's just like, I want more time to enjoy the summer. And yet here we are, like, chumps working on the Saturday of a long weekend. Uh, well, you know, that's what happens when we want to make sure that everyone in the GTA gets to the best news on eats and drinks. And that's a mission that I will gladly uh, give up a little bit of my Saturday for. Uh, you know, hey, it's why we're here. It's why we're behind the, behind the <laughs> microphones. We're actually, you and I are, are getting together tomorrow to do something that we, we talked about like way back in December where... Um, you know, I really appreciated the frank conversations we had around Christmas where we shared with the audience um, a little bit about our family traditions. And like you just mentioned how much you look forward to and really enjoy the whole like Thanksgiving and turkey spread and that it's something that is really like out of the ordinary for you. Yes. And so you told me that you were going to make me a turkey a la smoke style. Yep. And I'm pretty sure that turkey has been living in your freezer for a very long time for this particular moment. It has. But I mean, this is also something that we unpack a little while is, is I, I like to consider myself a little bit of like king of the turkeys. You guys can take that uh, however you want to take it. But um, I like to cook turkey in the off season. Um, a cooking turkey is an event. It's not something you can just do on a lark because it takes a lot of time. It's also like a massive piece of meat that you need to share with people. But um, I love cooking turkeys like in May and June and July, like just when people aren't expecting it and inviting them over for um, for dinner. And I've had friends, it, it's become something in my house that we call Just Because Turkey. Because I remember like the first time I called it that, I was cooking a turkey in June and a friend of mine was just like, why are you cooking turkey in June, it's just like, well, just because, because I can. So we call it just because turkey. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too, because we do buy like turkey deli meats at the supermarket. And I'm sure people get forms of shredded turkey or we eat turkey burgers. So we sort of eat turkey in various different forms <laughs> and iterations throughout the year. But I guess very few of us really imagine this like whole turkey it's in, in its entirety yes. being presented at other times of year. So, um, so. so yeah. Yeah. So my, my off season training has involved cooking all sorts of different iterations. Like the pressure is off that really perform for your family. Cause like if you screw up cooking a turkey on Christmas or New Year's, you're kind of out of luck. Your options for what's open for restaurants is a little more, more limited. You need to make sure it turns out well. So I find a lot of people are very conservative. Um, as you mentioned, I'm going to be smoking a turkey for you. So what I do is the day before the bird hits the smoker, I brine it. In a, in a recipe that uh, I won't read to you all on the radio, but if anyone wants the recipe for my brine, it's from a very good chef in Toronto that my wife used to work with. Uh, you can hit me up at Andre Wine Review. And then the other part of it is, if you are one of these people who struggle with cooking moist turkey, I cannot recommend enough getting a thermometer with multiple probes so that you can monitor different parts of the turkey as it cooks. So I put one probe in the breast and one probe in the thigh. 
Uh, on the smoker, I cook the turkey unstuffed so that you can do the next part where if you notice that the breast is cooking too fast because of heat pooling in one part of the smoker and the thigh cooking not fast enough, you can rotate the bird appropriately. And when you get about two thirds through, you can see that the temperature should start to line up so you can get that turkey to rise to 165 Fahrenheit, make sure it's safe and want to make sure I don't get any of my house guests sick. So there we go. Mm. We're in. Mm. We're I, on the LeMay Long weekend, and I'm talking about the proper way to cook a turkey. I love it. Well, I'm going to be enjoying your backyard this weekend, but until then, I certainly have loved seeing restaurants in Toronto, the ones with the you know the garage doors beginning to open yeah. them up, or anyone with the doors just like allowing that indoor outdoor space and putting tables out on the sidewalk for a little bit of patio al fresco time. Um, you know you. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a laptop nomad. I know we've had conversations about this before, love it or hate it, but I definitely do take my laptop around to work and you might be seeing my laptop getting baked in the sun as I take in a little bit of patio and work time. You know, I still wish that we had a few more like hot, hot days. I find that this spring has been a little cooler than most, but I'm starting to see that Canadian fortitude coming out that I felt was missing from... Uh, you know, my fellow Torontonians earlier this spring nursing a beer in eight degrees. But <laughs> Mother's Day wasn't a particularly warm day. And last weekend, I went to uh, Mira Mira for brunch and their patio was open. And there were a lot of people who were sitting outside enjoying their delicious brunch um, in like 14, 15 degrees Celsius. And I was just like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, we don't have to wait till June. Summer is here. Let's let's kick off the season, right? Well, my skin, uh, you know, as an Asian person, my skin needs some sunlight because there's melanin on my skin and that skin wants to tan. So <laughs> I'm ready for the sun. I'm ready for the sun now, Andre. But speaking of patios, I know um, the city of Toronto, I, I believe they have passed the law to make Cafe Teo permanent. I yes. know the fixture that they brought in through the pandemic as, you know, we engaged in more outdoor dining, but it was a really great opportunity for a lot of restaurants that usually don't have any patios of their own to create some patio space by taking up the streets. Um, and they're planning on make it permanent, but I don't think people are as happy as I thought they would be. Well, I mean, it, it's just typical, I think, politicians ruining a good thing when you and I were doing the research because we were just like, hey, like, what's going on with Cafe TO? It was such a nice part of the, the pandemic, but also just nice to really help the city feel alive. And then my eyes bugged out of my head when we looked at uh, over the next few years, like Cafe Tio is permanent, but the fees associated with it are about to skyrocket. And if you're running a tiny restaurant, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, and I guess my question to the city is just trying to figure out where those fees are going. Um, you know, when I'm trying to match it up and I, I, I wasn't doing perfect math or anything, I'm like, okay. We're about to lose some parking space mm -hmm. on the streets yep. for Cafe Teal. But is it really going to change or increase that much in the coming years? And is the infrastructure provided or, you know, actually going to... Is the infrastructure that the city's trying to provide for these cafes to open up a patio space require that much of a cost um, compared to sort of just the benefits of having... Uh, uh, and you know, a walkable city with more, as you know, as you and I have once described, just like I, I more, I don't know, like more uh, opportunity for social and community gathering, and as you said, making the city come a little more alive, as opposed to 
stuffing cars on streets that already aren't that great to navigate down already. Yeah. Well, I mean, so taking a look at the fees here, just as, as, as we're wrapping up here, in, in this year, it's going to cost $285 to apply for a permit for a sidewalk um, patio. You're looking at $14.56 per square meter for curb lane permit. It's $43.70 per square meter in 2025. So two years from now, those costs are going to almost quadruple $865 for the application fee, $44.14 per square meter. Uh, for sidewalk and $132.42 per square meter. I don't know about you, Maroki. I don't see the city hiring four times the staff to implement this program. This looks like a lazy cash grab and you're putting it on the backs of restaurants that frankly are, are still suffering. Like we've gone from pandemic to sort of economic uncertainty. And the first thing people are pulling back on right now are discretionary spending. I think that city council should be ashamed of themselves for for doing something like this and ruining a great program. And I'm hoping with the mayoral election coming up that this becomes something that at least one of the candidates talks about. Mm -hmm. Well, if anyone has insights on Cafe Tio, um, please hit Andre up, Andre Wine Review, or myself at Nine Ounces, please. And perhaps this is a project that you and I can investigate a little bit further as we get uh, further into warm weather and patio season. Let's save the patios. Yes. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to continue down the vein of Asian Heritage Month and speaking to a, someone who's just been a really impressive figure that I've been following for a couple of years. This is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I'm Andre Pru, joined by my co-host Maroki Tong. And uh, Maroki, I think we're running through... Every chef that has appeared on the Food Network, and I'm loving it. <laughs> Look, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I have this radio show to interview all my favorite people. And we have Chef Wallace Wong joining us very shortly. He was a finalist on Top Chef Canada on a previous season. And I, I, I he would say, he's probably one of the first chefs on Top Chef that I had the pleasure of um, having some interactions with before even the radio show. I just, you know, I, it, he was one of those folks where I was like, oh my God, there's that Asian representation. And look, it's Asian Heritage Month. I'm going to get on my soapbox and talk about all the best Asian chefs out there. And he was one that just struck such a chord with me, his passion, his skill set. And so when I had the opportunity to connect with him on socials and eventually now invite him on the show, I just had to take the chance. So joining us today is Chef Wallace Wong. Hey, Chef, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? How are you? Doing very well. You know, I think Maroki actually managed to understate your resume. She mentioned Top <laughs> Chef Canada, but she forgot to mention uh, Chopped Champion, Fridge Wars Champion, uh, a Top 10 finalist for Bake It Possible, and now you're a Guinness World Record holder. So, I mean, is there still room in your trophy case for anything else? Or is there something you're working on? Like, what's what's driving you to, to collect all these W's? <laughs> Andre, do I do I Venmo you or PayPal you later for all that great great introduction? <laughs> uh, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And always uh, hearing it is always something that I don't, I don't think about until someone says it, and I'm like, ah. Um, and I think you asked me a question of like what drives me to get all these W's. Um, I don't do these to kind of get W's. I think these are just um, the opportunities come, and I'm I'm very grateful for opportunities that I never had, and. I think that's a big reason why the W comes from that. Um, it's because I, I'm really excited. And I actually really enjoy the opportunity and I don't take it for granted. I love that. It, it's, you know what? That's like the most humble answer. I know. I, I would say that would that. come from anyone with such like an incredible repertoire. And 
I've been, you know, I've been since watching you on Top Chef, I've been seeing the emergence of your brand. Cause like I said, I've followed you since your season and I've seen the emergence of six pack chef. I actually don't know if that actually came pre Top Chef, but it's something I've definitely noticed since Top Chef. Can you share a little bit about where that came about? Yeah, for sure. So six pack chef was definitely not like something that like uh, happened over Top Chef. It's, um, it's essentially accumulation of the last like decade of my life. And I kind of said, like, I tasted a bunch of different things. And um, Six Pack Chef is now essentially the branded version of myself. Um, so Six Pack Chef is built on three things. Eat good, look good, look great. So eat good is all things food and, and hospitality. Look good is all things health and fitness. And then live great is all things entrepreneurship, lifestyle, motivation. And each of those pillars are um, big parts of my life, if not all accumulation of my life, whether it's as a chef, whether it's as a, a bodybuilder or whether it's as an entrepreneur or a cancer survivor. Wow. Wow. I feel like you just brought up like a whole bunch of pieces of yourself that the audience probably haven't heard of. So you talked about entrepreneur, you talked about cancer survivor. Do you want to elaborate this one a yeah. little bit? Like that's the, like suddenly I'm hearing a whole new, a whole like additional backstory of you too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously sort of Andre kind of alluded to sort of the, the chef stuff about it. Um, being Michelin trained, worked at like Noma and Alinea. Um, so that's sort of the food side. In the middle of that, that, that look good. Um, I am a national level bodybuilder or a former national level bodybuilder. I placed uh, third in Canada and fifth in North America. And um, I, and I was, I was doing that while I was cooking. Uh, I grew up kind of, kind of chunky. I was clinically obese and kind of over, you know, high school and university and college sort of found my way into, um, into the fitness space just from, you know, comp competing as a, as a basketball player or just going to the gym. And sort of that's where like the, the fitness side came in. And then sort of the cancer, cancer part came actually um, amongst all of that. Um, it will be this year, 16 years remission. Um, so I had it when I was 17 and it was in my le left eye and I did like a full six month blast of chemotherapy and radiation. And um, that changed my life. That changed my life in terms of like how I view, view life, how I live it. Um, and it's kind of going back to a little bit what Andre mentioned about all these W's and like all these competitions or things. It's um, like I said, I know how it, I know how it feels to not potentially have an opportunity to not even have a tomorrow, which is why I take a lot of everything like as if it's that's my only chance. So I don't regret. Um, so that's sort of the, the cancer side of it. It was like um, a big part of me as a young kid. And that's sort of melded me to where I am today. And then the entrepreneur side um, comes over through a variety of things. Like obviously Six Pack Chef is my, my main business as a content creator, as a, as a chef. And um, I started that, I started that and going to where you asked me, like, how did this come up? I said 10 years of tasting because from when I left restaurants, I then did about 10 years of just trying things because I didn't know what exactly what I wanted. So I tasted. So I did like private chef, I did cooking classes, I did consulting, I did product development, I did personal training, I did meal prep. I've launched a couple products. I've helped launch the, a, a, like a fast casual takeout spot. And then taking all those things into, into like, into a view and then sort of taking the stuff that I don't like from all of those and taking the things I do like above and then sort of bringing them back to where I am today. And aside from just sort of six pack chef, I then started branching off into more opportunities such as uh, my company called Statual Foods, where we make flash rolls and meals. Um, it's almost like, you know, your, your typical meal kit, but we are significantly better and we do it in a frozen format. Um, so sort of that's where I am right now as six pack chef. 
while you know what my heart literally started beating so fast when you were just talking about how like you know sometimes you know you chasing your dreams because you don't know what's coming tomorrow i we had a conversation with chef deslo from vancouver another top chef finalist um a couple of weeks ago and she was just talking about switching her career midway through her life because she realized that she you know did not want to be kind of sitting in the office doing the things she didn't want to do anymore and it was about chasing her passion and i think we could definitely take a little bit of inspiration and a page out of both of your books of life and knowledge and experience so thank you so much for sharing that and i you know when you talk about being a national bodybuilder that in some ways resonates with me in a different level like outside of food and entrepreneurship there's often such a stereotype out there of how asian men are presented in media and entertainment and from my years of working in media and in acting it was you know a particular stereotype and image that i i really despise and so for you to kind of dismantle that just by straight up saying like i am i don't you know i'm a i'm a i'm a bodybuilding champion that just like is so cool to me so that's amazing for you to share that with our audience oh thank you appreciate it um it was not something that you know i, I was trying to do it um but i'm 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 happy to sort of you know be seen in that way so i i, I appreciate that all right so i guess getting back to some more of your skills uh, you hold a Guinness World Record for uh, your your knife skills. Uh, what's what's the record again? Something to do with how many cucumbers did you slice? Um, so the exact record is slicing a, hun- um, a slicing cu- cucumber in thirty seconds blindfolded, and I set it with one hundred and sixty six slices. So if my math is correct, even as an Asian, my math should be pretty good. But you know, um, speaking of stereotypes, it's like five, it's like five point five three slices a second wow you, you know what it's something that um i learned from my wife who as everyone in the audience knows is um is a chef is uh how important it is to have a good knife in the kitchen and be able yes. to work on those knife skills do you have any i guess the elevator pitch as we're wrapping up this segment what's some advice you could give to a home cook who uh who is looking to get better in the kitchen with their knives a sharp knife is going to be your most safest knife, and a safe knife allows you to be a better cook. So, so as we wrap up here, you're joining us on set uh, in Los Angeles. Is there something that you're working on that you want to tell the audience about where they can see you next? Yeah, so I can't say what the actual end, end result project is, but I am working on sort of like a production show um, very based upon culinary arts and, and a little bit exactly what you're kind of talking about of how to improve um, people's, people's knife skills and culinary skills. I love it. As someone who is probably very accident prone with a knife, I appreciate all the tips and I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming down the docket for you. Thank you so much, Wallace, for joining us today. Thank you, Maroki and Andre, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Coming up after the break, we are joined by Global Mail journalist Anne Hui, and she is going to unpack with us the concept of authenticity and Chinese cuisine. I can't wait to uh, dive into this topic. So don't go away, guys. We'll be back right after the break on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm Andre Pru, and I am joined by Maroki Tong. And we are still covering all things Asian Heritage Month. And this is a conversation I have really been looking forward to. Uh, we teased it last week, Maroki, when we were talking about mm-hmm. whether or not chicken balls are in fact, in fact, authentic Chinese cuisine. I know. And the interesting part is, is growing up, 
I never even questioned that it was authentic cuisine because it was something that my mother would take us to mm. in the mall to eat um, semi-regularly. I grew up in Kitchener-Waterloo, as many of you know, and when I was living there, um, it wasn't the most diverse. And trying to find, <laughs> quote-unquote, authentic Chinese food, I guess, um, ended up being the little stall inside of a mall. And it was as authentic as they come. And I, I remember as I grew older, I think when I started questioning it was I started seeing these YouTube videos of these people who'd be like trying Panda Express and they would have like, um, I guess my generation, the millennials, tasting the food and they're criticizing it, being like, oh, it doesn't taste like this and it doesn't taste like this region of China. And then they would give it to their parents to try and they're like, yeah, that's pretty authentic. Yeah, I'd eat that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is I, gr I grew up in Regina. And, um, you know, my friend Derek Yen, who is um, from Swift Current, I remember helping him just do some chores and, and go out to Swift Current with him. And his parents ran one of the two Chinese restaurants in Swift Current. And that's sort of the whole thing is when you get to the smaller towns, there's like one or two Chinese food restaurants that all serve a very variations on the same menu, right? Chicken balls chop suey, chow mein, things like that. And when I moved to Toronto in 2007, I was introduced to Chinatown on Spadina. I've eaten many late night, 2, 3, 4 a.m. steamed fishes. And, you know, the whole question about whether or not this style of Chinese food is really real Chinese food really started to creep in. And I think it's a question that a lot of, especially millennials, are asking because it's just a bit of an obsession, the experienced generation looking for the most authentic experience. And when you and I were having this conversation off the microphone, we thought it might be a good idea to speak with someone who has written about this at length. Uh, very pleased to be joined by Anne Hui, the author of Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe and Other Stories, a book that I love and have lent out many times. Thanks for joining us, Anne. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I guess um, maybe we can exp like I I don't even know where to get started when it comes to unpacking all that there is in the land of Chinese Canadian cuisine and maybe maybe we can just like approach it from the highest of high levels. Um, and do you think chicken balls is authentic Chinese cuisine? <laughs> When you ask that question, and when Andre asked the, the same at the outset of this conversation, the, the first questions that popped into my head were authentic to whom mm -hmm. and authentic to where, you know, and I think those are two very important questions to keep in mind anytime we talk about authenticity and food, you know the history of this world and the history of food and cuisines is such that people have always moved around in this world. You know, we've always had migration. We've always had people and different cultures meeting up against one another and seeing that expressed through food. So, you know, when we think about Italian food, Today, for instance, we think about, you know, tomato sauce and, 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 and a lot of tomatoes and, 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 and ingredients like that. And we think of that as being authentic or classic Italian food. But I don't know that everybody realizes that tomatoes have really only been used in Italy for the last, you know, 400 years or so. And, you know, the, the, the prominence of tomatoes in Italian cuisine is the product of Again, people moving from one region of the world to the next. You know, last week I went for Vietnamese food and 
was just thinking about, you know, the banh mi that my husband ate and, and the fact that they, that came from, you know, French baguettes that were brought to Vietnam during the French occupation in Vietnam. Um, I had Korean food the other day and, and army stew, which is, mm. you know, this like fiery, spicy kind of uh, very very popular korean dish that includes things like spam and american cheese you know and it's again the product of american soldiers who brought ingredients to korea you know so the idea of foods and different cultures kind of coming up against one another and 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 producing these new kinds of foods that's always existed and so when we take that into account and then you try to think about something like authenticity, it really becomes confusing because it's like, what are we even talking about? You know? And so it's a very difficult question to answer whether or not, you know, chicken balls are Chinese. Um, but I would say that here in Canada, there's a very, very, very good argument to be made that chicken balls are very much Chinese and also very much Canadian. Mm -hmm. I actually really think you answered the question, at least for me. Like, it, it like it like warmed my heart to hear everything you've said because one of the things that I've been speaking with Andre about in the last couple of weeks is the concepts of fusion or pan Asian and how in the last few years they've sort of become a bit of a dirty word mm -hmm. when it comes to you know the culinary world and mm -hmm. how can we claim that because we as people who are trying to become citizens of the world or you know in a increasingly globally diverse community, we are often taking our experiences into the world and manifesting it into dishes or stories to share with people. And, you know, if it if it if fusion is not kind of the sum of our combined experiences, what else is it, right? Mm -hmm. I think I think part of the reason why the word fusion uh, specifically has kind of developed this backlash in the last decade or so is has more to do with the way in which fusion food was executed in sort of the early aughts. You know, if we think about like the early 2000s, Asian fusion was a huge thing. You know, Japanese fusion, Thai fusion, uh, Indian fusion. And that was a trend that we saw in Western countries more than anything. And I think that that was a trend that we saw executed really clumsily. You know, when people talked about fusion food, there was a lot of language around elevating cultures, elevating Asian cuisines, elevating Chinese cuisines, um, elevating Indian cuisines, um, upscale versions, refined versions. And often there wasn't a lot of thought that went into kind of jamming different cultural foods together. It was just this idea of um, serving sometimes the same foods, but maybe even like less delicious versions, like not so well executed versions of those dishes, but then maybe kind of tarting up the, the ambiance or, or putting it on white tablecloths. So it was yeah. really kind of like a clumsy or chunky execution, kind of thoughtless when it came to, you know, the language around things. Um, and so I think, I think that is more what the backlash was about as opposed to the actual idea of combining different cultures. Well, and even the right, definition right. Of, of elevating being really portrayed and, and uh, looked at through a Eurocentric lens, mm -hmm. like that fine mm -hmm. dining really has that that Parisian, that French origin that has permeated the entire world culinary scene, but it's just like an elevated meal 
in Lyon doesn't necessarily look like an elevated meal in Beijing or like an elevated meal in Delhi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially, just- I mean, there is there is nothing, Andre, like drinking tea at I think it's Premier Ballroom up in Scarborough out of British style teacups, very fancy floral <laughs> British style teacups with dim sum. I can't wait to to experience something like that. But I know we are short on time here. The time has flown by and we barely scratched the surface. But one question I have with the authenticity, this is something that you touched on in the in the book and in the articles, and I've seen it in a few other places, is the whole concept that this style, that this new Canadian style of Chinese food isn't really diminishing and the way it's come into existence, it really has a, a deeper history. And I highly recommend people read the book Chop Suey Nation to dive into that some more. But do you find now that there is a new generation of children of immigrants who are taking ownership of this style and really helping it flourish as, you know, as I guess Canada as a whole continues to move forward? Yeah, I think there's definitely some of that. Um, just to just to backtrack a bit with the history of, you know, Chinese Canadian cuisine or chop suey cuisine, as I as I refer to it in the book, this was food that was developed as a direct reaction to all kinds of systemic barriers, all kinds of discrimination that was in place for those fir- for that first wave or those first few waves of Chinese immigrants here in Canada and around the world. So these were immigrants who didn't have a lot of options because of, you know, uh, actual policies and legal policies that were in place that, that systemically barred them from most um, from most workplaces and, and basically left very few choices but to work in restaurants. Um, these these restaurants and the cuisine were a reaction to, you know, xenophobia towards authentic or so-called authentic actual Chinese cuisine at the time. You know, actual Chinese food was seen as scary or creepy or dirty or potentially dangerous or diseased, all of these things. And so that's where this food comes from. You know, it's food that was developed, again, as a direct result of very real systemic barriers and very real racism that these migrants faced. And so I think for us now, several generations later, to look at this cuisine and to look at these restaurants um, and not just look at them, but look down upon them and to treat them again as, you know, something that is less than is is really rich, you know, and I think it just shows a real ignorance to the history that these restaurants represent. You know, these are restaurants that allowed many, many generations of migrants and immigrants to this country to gain a foothold, to be able to start new lives in this country. And they're really this beautiful expression of ingenuity and resourcefulness and 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 resilience against real ugliness. And so, again, I think for us now in 2023 to look down on these restaurants and say, oh, they're not authentic. Oh, they're not, you know, this or that is just doing such a disservice to these institutions that I think are just such an important testament to our country's history. I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Anne. And as we wrap up the segment, I'm so glad you got a chance to share the history, the uh, history of like Chinese, Canadian and Asian immigrants into the country and exactly how they contributed to the fabric and the mosaic of what we have today. Um, So I encourage everyone out there to go visit your little Chinese Canadian um, restaurant and order yourself some chicken balls and chop suey. 
and enjoy them with a little bit of uh, tangible romanticism after listening to this interview about the struggle <laughs> that went into making that food. And thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. Thank you to you both. Well, coming up after the break, I had the opportunity, Andre, to check out Sip and Sizzle in Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is the perfect start to enjoying wine outdoors and wine tourism in the region. I couldn't agree with you more, and I can't wait to hear what places you checked out. On 640 Toronto, this is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I'm Andre Prude, joined by Maroki Tong and Danny Longo. And it is the long weekend, but Maroki, you got a bit of a head start on, uh, I guess, what people generally do on long weekends in Ontario last week. Yeah, last week I got a chance to check out the Sip and Sizzle event that is happening Niagara-on-the-Lake. And they're happening every weekend till the end of the month. Um, Essentially, you buy a pass that allows you access to several wineries across Niagara-on-the-Lake. You can check it all out on their website. And what you do is you get a little um, wine pairing with barbecue food. Right on. And that's at wineriesofniagaraonthelake.com. This is specifically for the wineries of Niagara on the lake. And um, I guess, like, how how does the passport program work? So you have a chance to either buy an individual pass, I believe, or you can buy a couple's pass. And if you buy the individual's pass, I think it allows you access up to 16 wineries and you can use the pass throughout the entire month. Um, the couple's pass, it still gives you 16 tickets, but it gives you, it basically divvies it up by two. So now, you know, you get the chance to visit up to eight wineries and you... Uh, pre-select the wineries you're going to visit you can find out you know which foods are being served or which wines they're pairing it with so you can kind of pick what is your favorite and then you select the dates that you want to go just so that the winery knows that they should be expecting you during the day and then you just saunter in and then you get wine and a snack and you get to eat it and be happy (laughs) any any highlights for you um i got to indulge my full-on cheat day at palatine hills they have like a fried macaroni and cheese stick like fried macaroni and cheese sticks and they give you four different kinds of ketchup (laughs) like gochujang ketchup and dill ketchup bloody mary ketchup and i'm really upset because they don't sell the ketchups and they were so delicious (laughs) so i would say that was definitely a highlight for me and then i got a chance to also visit mary neeson and taste their wine i really enjoyed their wine pairing they do um a meritage red blend with their uh wine and food pairing and it was actually really interesting to learn that they have some, if not the oldest Cabernet Sauvignon vines in Canada. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, I guess it's sort of a bit of a kept secret because Mary Neeson isn't as popular as it once was. Now, Danny, I think you're heading out to Sip and Sizzle uh, this weekend? The following weekend, Following yes. weekend, okay. okay so yeah, each- weekend, 27, 28th. But yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I love these passport style events where you get to go to a bunch of wineries and, you know, usually the way we decide which wineries to go to is by the food. Okay. And then the wine is just a lovely bonus. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's like I, I look at the foods and I'm like, okay, I definitely want to try this food, this food, and this food. And then you get to go to the wineries and you get a little uh, history lesson, I guess, sometimes of, uh, of the wineries. And, you know, a lot of the times they pair with uh, local uh, restaurants or chefs that come in and they prepare the food for the wineries. So it's, it's, it's always fun time. So yeah, if you're not doing anything, it's a great it's a great excuse to get out to Niagara on the Lake. It's yeah, they fa- brought in uh, they brought in two new cideries this year as oh, well. Interesting. Yeah, 
I love that Snyder's really become more of a part of the, the the fabric of Niagara, and even just in general, like seeing how Niagara on the Lake has developed. Like food has always been a big part of um, the community down there, with a lot of really great restaurants tied to wineries. But even now, like the food scene just continues to evolve and get better and better and more interesting. So, you know, if it's been even five years since your last visit to Niagara, I guarantee you there's some new stuff for you to check out. Oh, a hundred percent. Every time, every time oh. I go, there's a couple of new wineries or or cideries or even breweries as well. So, yeah, and I have like an ever mounting list of restaurants that I need to visit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know what? Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> while you guys are checking out Sip and Sizzle, uh, I've been flexing my snob hat quite a bit, and this was something I wanted to ask you guys about just to see how how bad of a snob I am. My um my bank account has not been very happy with me lately i've been ordering a lot of wines um have either of you heard of five rose winery or uh the mason vineyards no i have not maroki i i have um i guess that kind of mounts me in the upper echelon and danny (laughs) i get to put on a little snob monocle here It's one of these things where, so the Five Rose Winery is in St. David's Bench, which is right in the heart of Niagara-on-the-Lake. And once a year, they do a wide release of their wines. This is a winery that has a bit of a cult following, and you'll see them on wine lists that really, really love Ontario. The prices are not for the faint of heart if your usual go-to is like a $10 or $15 bottle of wine. Their reds go for $65, and their whites go for $44, and it was a big deal that they were just releasing their 2020 reds. 2020 was an outstanding growing year, and um, I mean, if you want to take a look at how I live my life, guys, I got the email uh, two weeks ago that on May 10th at 9.30 in the morning, the wines were going on sale, and guess what I was doing at 9.29 in the morning? It reminds me of my days on eBay when I tried to buy collectibles and I'd wake up at three in the morning just so I could bid in the last two minutes. I mean, that's it. And it just had me thinking about uh, the stuff that people are willing to line up for. It makes me a little bit sad that I think for millennials for the most part, and I guess maybe some older Gen Z, that whole like lining up for concert tickets doesn't really exist anymore because everything just happens online and The wines from Five Rose generally sell out very quickly. The quality is very good. They're definitely among the premier wineries in Ontario. And it's just, it's not one of those places where you'll ever see a tour bus show up. So go to their website, sign up for the mailing list. And if cult wineries are something that's of interest to you, by all means, you should sign up for next year. And I'm also in line to get the wines from Mason Vineyards. Uh, Winemaker Kelly Mason has really uh, made quite the name for herself in the past, uh, I guess, decade. I'm not even sure how long she's been around, but it seems everywhere that she's been making wine always has a lineup of people waiting to uh, waiting to buy them. But her own label has been another one where they go on sale, they quickly sell out, and um, not super duper expensive. I think we're looking at similar prices, forty to fifty dollars. I don't know. Would the two of you ever like line up or, or sit by your computer to buy a bottle of wine online, or am I just really showing how much of a snob I am? Oh man, I don't think I don't think I would. I don't think I would. Not yet. Not yet. But maybe. But maybe. You know, maybe I would. It is possible. Okay. How about you? You Maroki? just need tasted once. Tasted once, and <laughs> yes. then you'll be sold, and then you'll be like screaming at the door. I, 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 I guess I've been sort of a part of it in a little way. I've not been the one to necessarily press go. I guess so to say. But I know I've had other people, you know, attend events or 
be coordinating a purchase and they'll say to me, Maroki, do you want anything? And I guess in this, <laughs> um, to this point, I'm really lucky to have wine friends who are on top of all the days of releases. So then they can tell me what I want and I tell them and then someone else is sitting at the computer at 9.29 in the morning <laughs> pressing purchase to try and get the allocation. But I guess it really comes down to price point, Andre. And I, I know we spoke a little bit about this in prepping for the show. Yeah. In some ways, a lot of the cult wineries, you were talking to me about some of the cult wineries in the States, and you wondered if I'd ever heard of them or done anything to try and procure the wines. And frankly, those wines are so far out of my price range that it's just not even on my radar anymore. So it's like, sure, they're a cult wine, and I'm, I'm sure they're sold out, but there's just not even any reason for me to be attempting it. Where I suppose for something like Fibros and Mason, um, at their price point, they're more aspirational, right? It's like, oh, you know what? If I squirrel away a few dollars in my piggy bank for a few months, I could maybe get my hands on one of these. And maybe I should, I'm putting my foot in my mouth because I do have a five <laughs> rows in my cellar. <laughs> a place like five rows, can us regular folk just go walk in and do a tasting? Or is it like completely, you know, here's our release one, once a year and that's it. They do do limited tastings. If you go to their go to their website, you can occasionally book it, but... Like I said, it's one of those things where it's off the beaten path. You're never going to be seeing a massive lineup. And like, and also just to go back to what you said, Maroki, like the winery that really comes to mind, like when you're learning about wine is everyone talks about Screaming Eagle, which is a Napa Valley um, Cabernet Sauvignon that is super exclusive. I'm on a, on winesearcher.com taking a look. Um, if you guys want to pool your money, we can get our hands on a 1992 bottle of Screaming Eagle for uh, a mere $28,510. I don't know how that sounds to you guys. Uh, I'm good. I, I, I want to know if I'll go to heaven if I take a sip of this wine. But, you know, pulling it back to Niagara... I guess they're not so much of a cult winery. They're a little bit more accessible on the mainstream market these days. But Danny, if you're looking for an opportunity to, you know, have a tasting mm -hmm. and, um, you know, with a winery that's off the beaten path, but well known, but a little bit more accessible, um, Batchelder Wines, they open up their tasting room. What is it, Andre? Like a, just like a couple of years now, two, three years yeah. for the public. And, but the only way to taste with them is you do have to sign up for their newsletter in order to book um, space for a tasting with them, but they do run them okay. on the regular. And Thomas, when you taste with Thomas, he'll walk you through the gamut, baby, oh, on yeah. what it means for terroir and wine history and the lay of the land in the way that you've never experienced wine before. Good call. Okay. Good. Call. I will. I will. I'm writing this down. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Danny Maroki, for putting together another great show. Uh, tune in next week at five o'clock. Yes, I'm patting ourselves on the back for how good of a job we did. Yay, <laughs> us. Um, so stick around next week. On Tasting Together, 640 Toronto.